So for me, looking back um, over um, the earlier years of my life, my growing up years, I can tell, it is now clear to me, that I was consistently asking some form of this who are my people question for most of my younger years. You see, for me, I was asking who are my people because uh, as a pastor's kid, uh, we kind of moved a lot. By the time I was 13, I had been in seven houses, six school districts, four churches in six cities in four states. Uh, So there was a sense in which I I felt like I didn't have much in the way of sort of this rootedness, like, like these are my people and this is where I'm from. To this day, people will ask me where I'm from, and I'm really, I'm not sure what to tell them. So now I tell them, of course, I'm from God's country, East Tennessee. (laughs) Because that's just true, (laughs) y'all. Sorry, I don't have 17 years. I don't quite have the twang, but. So for me growing up, I had this this nagging feeling. I had these feelings that I I realized later were always there, Uh, sort of this, um, geographical discombobulation. <laughs> That's how I think of it. You're welcome. You're like, geographical discombobulation. You're welcome. Um, I had this sort of sense of not having a place that was my home uh, until there was a small incident in late high school. A small little incident, not a grand story, but just something I overheard when I was in the line at grocery store, and I, I overheard this conversation where somebody was talking about this concept they called their home church. <laughs> And I thought to myself, huh, that's a concept I've never heard of before. Think about this. I'm a pastor's kid, and somehow this concept of one's home church eluded me all those years. I didn't even really know that was a thing. But I remember at the time feeling, because we had been at something that was beginning to feel to me like a home church, I remember beginning to feel at the time like, hey, I have one of those. I have one of those. (laughs) So for me, that moment really stuck with me, and it's always sort of uh, been a defining little moment for me because for me, outside of my immediate family, I didn't really know who my people were until I heard somebody talk about that concept, and I thought, I have one of those. And I thought for the first time, boom, these are my people. This is my place. This is where I belonged. My people were my home church. And I, and, I, and I feel like I began to understand some of what Jesus meant in Mark 3.35 when he, when he looked out at those who were closest to him, those who were following him most closely, and he said, whoever does the will of God, those are my people. So I want to ask you, who are your people? Do you have people like that? Do you know why they are your people? Today we're going to study a woman who approached Jesus, knowing full well her people were not his people. And at the same time, Jesus knew full well his people were not her people. So they were both aware that each other's people were not each other's people. But nonetheless, she comes to Jesus risking the offense of going beyond the borders Because she knows that Jesus offered her something she couldn't get from the people that she felt were her people. (laughs) So look with me in Matthew 15. 
And keep in mind here, before we jump in, Matthew 15, 21 is where we're going to start. But keep in mind here that for Matthew, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And one of his main goals was to show that Jesus' message was not just for the Jews, not just for his own people, but also for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the foreigners, like this woman. So jump in at verse 21. It says this, Matthew writing, he says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, that was for some time away from the opposition that he'd been experiencing among his own people, uh, more in Jerusalem and doing ministry around the Galilee area. So he was on a retreat for some time away from opposition. That's why he withdrew to the district, it says, of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that region, from Tyre and Sidon, came out, came out to Jesus and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now press pause here. There's a lot going on here in these first two verses because what's happening here at the beginning of the story is that Matthew is very intentionally uh, sort of triggering his readers uh, to set the scene for what goes down here. He begins in verse 21 by saying that Jesus withdrew from Jewish territory to the foreign territory of Tyre and Sidon, which means that Jesus is traveling into land where there is a very long history of the strained relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Not only had the Old Testament prophets condemned this place, this Tyre and Sidon place for their worship of foreign idols, but there had been many wars between Jews and those from the likes of this area, Tyre and Sidon. There's a long history of bad blood there. And so notice also in verse 22 that Matthew refers to this woman as a Canaanite. This is significant because by this time, by the time Matthew's writing these verses, no one would have referred to someone from that area as a Canaanite. That was kind of an old term. In fact, in Mark's account of this same story, he doesn't call her a Canaanite. He calls her a Syrophoenician. That's a geopolitical term for someone from that area at the time. But Matthew here calls her a Canaanite because this is an old term from the Old Testament uh, to describe the old bad guys who were the worst of the old bad guys. The Canaanites were the worst enemies of the Jews. So without question here, when Matthew's Jewish readers come across this word Canaanite, they would have gasped. Canaanite for them was practically a racist term at this point. So the way that Matthew is sort of putting together this story at the beginning would have conjured up racial prejudices, bad feelings, uh, stories from the family of ill will that would have been shared for generation after generation. So here's Jesus. Think about this. Here's Jesus traveling from where his people lived into hostile Gentile territory where there's, there's this long history of bad blood that goes back well over a thousand years. And Matthew says to his Jewish readers, he says, look at 22 again. He says, behold, like check this out. A Canaanite woman of all people approaches Rabbi Jesus, the, the, the teacher Jesus, who is one of our revered teachers of the Old Testament law. She approaches him in public, which is something you just don't do as a woman, let alone a Canaanite woman. And she approaches Jesus not just with this polite request, but with the audacity to, to pretty much yell and scream like a crazy Canaanite would, 
Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter severely oppressed by a demon, as if just sort of using our words for the coming Messiah would conjure up a miracle to help her daughter. Can you believe she would be that audacious and offensive? That's sort of the feeling of what's going on here at the beginning. Now notice how Jesus sort of doesn't respond. Look at verse 23. In sort of in keeping with the offense of this woman that has crossed the sacred boundary. Verse 23. Matthew reports, he did not answer her a word. Now Matthew doesn't tell us why Jesus ignores her here at first. From what we know in the Gospels, it's, it's really not like Jesus to just ignore someone who's begging for mercy. But at this point, because of the offense of this woman crossing these well-established cultural norms, the jury was sort of out on whether her request of him was genuine. And I suspect that actually Jesus' silence here is him just sort of waiting for the drama of the moment to die down while he tests to see if she really believes if he can help her. And apparently the, the disciples don't really think that this is a genuine request for her by her to Jesus because they start freaking out. Keep reading there. It says this, and his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Meaning she kept crying out and, and yelling for his help, sort of badgering. And then he answered verse 24, Jesus answering the woman. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Meaning that according to God's promise, the Jews were supposed to get first dibs to respond to his coming. And while this at first looks like Jesus is, is turning her down, I don't think he really is. He's actually just testing her to see if her faith uh, was genuine. Keep reading verse 25. But she came and knelt before him. She persisted saying, Lord, Help me, she's desperate, she's broken, she's begging Jesus for help. She calls him Lord a second time. She's on her knees begging him for help. And he answered, sort of putting her off again, verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now Jesus is using strong but familiar language to compare the Jews and the Gentiles here. He's obviously saying it wouldn't be right to take the children's food and to throw it to those who aren't yet a part of the family. Like Jesus knows, the Father has sent me on a mission to my people first. It's a way to say again, just like he had done in verse 24, that Jesus' mission was to his own people at first. And the way he says it, it admittedly sounds a little offensive here and like a pretty serious rejection of her. But again, I don't think Jesus is saying that salvation is for Jews only as much as he is saying that it's for Jews first. They got the first dibs. So I think Jesus is, is still testing her. And her response leads credence to this idea that it's, it's a test to see if her faith was, was genuine. This is something Jesus did in a number of places. And her response lends credence, credence to this idea. In, in fact, look at how next in the, the rest of this scene here, look at how she plays along with Jesus's uh, sort of putting her off and, and testing here. She plays along with Jesus's response. 
And in fact, she doesn't contradict him, but she gives here what is ultimately a very wise and a very faith-filled reply. Look at verse 27. This is great. She said, after Jesus holds her off and says, it wouldn't be right to take the children's food and to throw it to the dogs, to those who aren't yet a part of the family, really. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. (laughs) Boom. Brilliant. I can see the disciples quietly like fist bumping each other like, In all of the Gospels, this is the only time where somebody wins in a debate with Jesus. And notice that it isn't her clever wit or her her learning that turns the tables. It is her humility and her faith. She says, yes, Lord, I get it. I accept that your mission is to your people first. They get first dibs. But I'm happy, I am more than happy to have the scraps of what you're offering me. Because I know that's enough. In effect, she says, I can see, I believe that you have more than enough power and authority to go around for all. And that your leftovers are more than enough to help me and to cure my daughter. Jesus absolutely loves her response. He loves her response of a humble faith that prompted her to go beyond the borders, to risk offense. Look at his response in the last verse here. He says, then Jesus answered her, oh woman, great is your faith. He didn't say that about very many. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This Canaanite woman, this non-Jewish foreigner, knowing full well that she was crossing borders and well-established lines that were long considered sacred. She took a big risk, and it paid off. Jesus rewarded her persistent and her humble faith by healing her daughter. Now, I want to draw out three lessons for us today. Three simple lessons. The first is this. The fellowship the gospel offers, the fellowship the gospel offers is for those you've never considered your people. The fellowship the gospel offers is for those people you've never considered your people. (laughs) Jesus knows here full well what his own disciples and his own people obviously didn't know. Namely, that the good news of his coming as Messiah was good news not just for them, but for all nations. Matthew himself eventually saw this, which is why throughout his gospel, there are little hints of of good news for, for everyone that happened throughout. They're sprinkled throughout the gospel of Matthew until the very end where we see it very written, uh, written very explicitly in Matthew 28, 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So he had written this to his own people, to the Jews, to whom Jesus came because they got first dibs to say, listen, this isn't just for us. This is, this is something that's becoming a make disciples of all nations mission. 
So friends, this offer, this offer of fellowship here, this together for the gospel thing that is our gathering, is for people that you've never considered your people. It's for people you're not even seeing as your people. Frankly, we get, we get so disgustingly uh, complacent and comfortable in this place of knowing Jesus for ourselves that we begin to shape our lives as if his mission of coming for the nations is not our mission. Jesus didn't come just to save us. He came to be a model for how he wants us to make disciples of all nations. His heart isn't just for you. It's for all nations. So the call is to make disciples of people you've never even considered your people. Which means, number two, we need to see the Canaanites. (laughs) There are Canaanites all around you who are looking for scraps from the table. All around you. At First Christian Church, we say that our mission is helping people find and follow Jesus. Uh, We may say this lots of different ways, with different words, um, over a long time, Uh, but that's a mission that hasn't changed since Jesus came, Uh, and as long as we're faithful, it's not going to change until he returns. And in this series, this mission of helping people find and follow Jesus, it takes the form of turning our focus from ourselves to others around us who need to find and follow Jesus. If you will have eyes to see, you will notice that you already have Canaanites in your life who are persistently and humbly asking you for help if you'll see it, if you'll hear it, if you'll be aware, if you'll look for them. And here's the the cool thing about following Jesus, if you have people... (laughs) is it doesn't take much more than your awareness and your faithfulness to help people find and follow Jesus. It really doesn't. If you are looking for people who are looking for help, if you are looking for people who are looking for help, and I think it's okay, by the way, like Jesus here, to see if they're really looking for the help that only he can provide. But if you're looking for people who are looking for help, it doesn't take much more than your awareness and faithfulness to begin to help. Learn to look around you for Canaanites. It's just plain awareness and faithfulness to step in and help. It's not rocket science, it's faithfulness to help. Learn to look around you for the Canaanites in your life. Not just Monday through Saturday as you leave this place, there are likely today sitting around you Canaanites with us who crossed what they felt like coming in these doors were well-established borders to look for the kind of help they need because they know there's this, this guy, Jesus, that can give them what they need. Every Sunday, we have people among us who have risked going beyond relational borders to be here with us, which means they are at least open to the idea that they can find their people here. They can find the fellowship of other believers who have found and who follow Jesus. So learn to go find some Canaanites 
who come here asking, who are my people? And invite them. Invite them to your, lo- your life group. Invite them to regen with us on Mondays. Great questions on Mondays. Invite them to come along with you. Incidentally, parenthetically, make no mistake, it is only the church that looks for and cares for Canaanites more than looking for and caring for self that will actually reach people. Christians turned inward stay turned inward. It is only the church that looks for and notices and cares for Canaanites more than looking for and caring after self that will reach people. A church where everyone is taking care of only themselves is only an inward, insular, selfish, and not very fruitful, and not very Jesus-crossing-borders church. And that kind of church where everyone is mainly focused on taking care of themselves will inevitably become a church that doesn't care about outsiders, that doesn't believe hell is real, that doesn't believe that non-believers are lost and broken and seeking help. If our efforts are primarily directed at caring for ourselves and taking care of our own, we will eventually hunker down and become prepper and hoarder church. And we live in a part of our world where conservative Christians come to hunker down and disengage and die. We want to produce producers who bear fruit, who care about lost people, who believe that hell is real, who believe that not having a connection to Jesus without a good, my people are the body of Christ answer, are going to spend eternity apart from a relationship with God. Prepper and hoarder church that welcomes in no one new has effectively said, I do not take on Jesus' mission. Parenthetical rant over. (laughs) Look for Canaanites who are all around you uh, who are looking for scraps from the table uh, because you'll see them when you look. Third thing is this. What Jesus offers, (laughs) what Jesus offers is so good that the leftovers are more than you actually need. This is the beauty of the gospel here. What Jesus offers is so good that the leftovers are more than you could ever actually need. Some of you sitting here today may be struggling because you feel like your problems are beyond solving. You know you need Jesus, but you feel maybe like your needs are unfixable, your shame is Your shame is more than you can bear. Maybe your pride is what's keeping you isolated. If this is you and you're beginning to see this struggle in yourself uh, and become aware of your inability to fix yourself, congratulations, you're actually beginning to make some progress (laughs) because you're beginning to realize you're not as amazing as you think you are. You have to get there to follow Jesus fully. Because here's what's so good about what Jesus offers. Though you need far more help to fix you than you have tools or know-how, 
All it really takes, all it really takes is a soft heart willing to ask for the help of Jesus' sinless life lived for yours. It is his all-sufficient grace offered to you as a gift that is yours for the taking today. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, being provision uh, that we didn't even know we needed until we admitted that what you say about us is true. That without you revealing yourself to us, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. Unaware of our need for you to help. Father, we're grateful that you are powerful beyond our powerlessness. And that what you give us, Lord, is more than enough for us. So we reclaim that truth afresh in our hearts and minds today, Lord, humbling ourselves under the authority of your word, under the authority of your son, Jesus. Opening ourselves again today to your spirit to move and to continue to shape us into your likeness. Father, for those who are looking for their people. Give them the strength and courage today to to make a step, to trust in Jesus, knowing he's enough, and that they can find fellowship with others who have said yes to that same trust. Father, make of us a place where we uh, see those in need around us who are willing to step across the borders because they know they need what only you can offer. Father, make of us a place and a people where that's not theory, but it's practice. And it's what changes lives because it's evidence of you moving in and among us. That those in this people and outside of this people would look at us and know that you're real and that you offer a forever relationship with your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.